counting trials joy. We'll just read the passage and then provide or say those things that we feel the Lord has given to us to say. We know who he is. He told us who he was, James did in verse 1, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We tried last week to express the significance of that very simple phrase, how all the rest that he is going to say in this letter, the brother of our Lord, comes into a better and a sharper focus if we understand that that's who, who has written it and what it means that he saw himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he launches directly into um, some of the heart of the matter. As we said last week, James probably seems almost certainly to be the, the earliest book of the New Testament that was written. James himself will die in 62 AD. This book probably of his letter written somewhere in the 40s AD is, seems to be the likelihood. And after telling us who he is, he and these brothers and sisters of his that he refers to as the dispersion, those brothers and sisters, both Jewish brothers, but also followers of Christ. And he says to them, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to begin today by telling you what you likely already know, a little bit about my own position before this passage, and that is this, I'm still learning and still climbing and still a lot of ground to cover. So I present to you today something to which I aspire, but certainly not something that I could say I have fully obtained. I'm Maybe you might say a little bit like Moses, and I think we're all probably this way, but looking over into this land, and I can, I can see it, I know it's there, but far too infrequently do I walk in that land, in this place that James calls us to walk in, and ultimately we believe that God calls us to walk in as this is his word. But I, I suppose as I think about that, of I'm sharing something with you today that I myself must learn so much more about. I find myself in good company. Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians, the ch third chapter, verses 12 through 15, Paul tells the Philippians this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So I find myself in good company, I think. And if you find yourself in this place where 
when you read this word that you've likely heard many times, if you've been raised in church, that we're to count trials as joy, and and that seems something of a of a contradiction to you, and and you don't get it fully, and you don't understand how anyone could possibly do such a thing, that you don't feel that you've obtained this. You're in good company. I think we've all been there and are there in some degree or another, and Paul teaching the Philippians teaches us as well that this is something that must be striven for and always sought, knowing and understanding that on this side of eternity we'll we'll never fully obtain it, perhaps. I pray that we get closer and closer, that we become more and more mature spiritually, but this is always going to be a struggle. And this is always going to be something that you're going to have to make your own. And that, that popped out at me, that, those words that Paul said when he said, I'm striving to make it my own, that I haven't yet made it my own. Mine, that I possess. The real struggle, I think, with anything in Christianity is in the making it our own. Mine. Me counting my trials as joy. Me placing my faith in Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's the real struggle of the Christian life. To become a Christian, one must make Christ their only and their true hope. To become a Christian, one must truly and repent of their sin. When I was 11 years old, it wasn't someone else's sin that I had to repent for. It was mine. It wasn't someone else's salvation that I had to seek. It was mine. It wasn't someone else's God that I had to seek. It was mine. And there we know there is but one God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, three in one, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I had to on that day submit to Him and make Him mine. And make me His. It's all good and well. It's all good and well to speak of being a Christian. And it's all good and well to speak of counting our trials as joy. But it is in the making it our own that the battle really lies. That's where the test is really given. That's where the rubber meets the road, as they say, making this mine. And so I ask you today to to come to this scripture with that in mind. That I would be able, by God's help, to express to you the calling that James gives to us and that God himself gives to us to count our trials as joy. And I don't come to you standing firmly with both feet on that land and on that ground, but I come to you telling it's there. Let's go there if we can. I think it's important here to point out that Paul did not tell the Philippians again that, or any other place in Scripture that we are told to, to make the Christian faith someone else's and make it real for them. He doesn't, 
He doesn't tell the Philippians that. He doesn't say, my desire is that I would make this real for you. Of course, he wanted it to be real to them. But his struggle, the battle that he talked about, was to make it his own. That's where his battle was. I think, though, that in times in history we've seen where perhaps backed by the authority of a human government, there's been attempts to compel Christianity upon a a nation of people. And now we see as well uh, in other religions a compelling of people to, to abide by a certain religion and to make it their own. But I will tell you today, I don't believe that that's possible. I don't believe you can compel anyone to be a Christian in the sense that you can force them to be. I don't believe that you have the ability to do that. It doesn't matter even if our intentions are good, that we have the ability to compel this upon others at all. But I think that's the error error sometimes that under the banner of Christianity, it's been made to make people be Christian. But we would be no more successful at compelling or requiring someone to become a Christian than we would be at compelling a lion to be a lamb. We wouldn't be any more successful. Because this is something that you must make your own. If you're waiting for someone else to make this real for you, you'll be waiting a very long time. If you're waiting as a child of God to learn how to count trials as a joy, if you're waiting for someone else to show you how to do that, you'll be waiting a long time. We won't be any more successful at making people Christian again than we would be at making or compelling a lion to be a lamb. Is just the analogy I thought of. You might be able to restrain the lion and plant him in the midst of a bunch of lambs, but all that you would have to do to remember that that is a lion is to remove the restraints. And you would remember quickly he's a lion and not a lamb. I think there are a lot of people today that live in the constraints of a family culture, a nation even. Perhaps we could say this was true, perhaps not today, but at some point in the past, compelled and restrained to live a Christian life. But remove those restraints, and the lion shows himself to be what he is in our lives. So we can't compel. We can't force this upon anyone else, no matter how much we might desire that others would indeed place their hope in Christ and follow the path of obedience to God in their lives. It is not in our power to do so, but it is in our realm of influence to control our own hearts. Though no amount of begging on our part will prove sufficient to put faith into someone else, we can beg God for faith in our own hearts to increase, to be made greater. Though no amount of threatening on our part will prove sufficient to put faith in God in someone else, may God show us the great need that we have, that we would fight this battle in our own hearts, The Christian warfare, the spiritual warfare of a child of God 
is fought one heart at a time by the owner of that heart. This is not to say that we fight alone because we don't, and I thank God for that. Perhaps most especially in our time of trial, we come to understand we are not alone. There are others who love us and care for us, and that is an inexpressible blessing to know. And it helps us and it sustains us. We do not fight alone. And yet, that deepest battle, that deepest part of us, that is a place where we, with God alone, must go. And so as we look at this passage today, realize and understand, first of all, that this must be something that we wrestle with individually. That we deal with. And as we look together at these few verses, I want to encourage you with what God says about this. All again the while realizing that I myself and all of us no doubt have things to consider. Things to add, things to take away in our hearts. In order to live where James encourages us to live. He begins and he, he says this phrase, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I just, I want to look at just these, these individual words and phrases and, and I want you to consider them with me today. He says, count it. Count it. It's a verb. It's something we must do. Anyone who knows much at all about Christianity or the Bible is aware of this instruction, I think. It's one of the more familiar passages to count it all joy. And I think it's one of the more familiar ones for the very fact that we all encounter many trials in our life and it's so opposite of what we naturally tend to do. We're so familiar with it that that familiarity can actually become an enemy when we think we know what we do not yet fully know. And I will tell you today that even knowing Scripture, memorizing Scripture, does not make it your own. Believing Scripture and living Scripture and making decisions based upon God's Word because it's what you want and desire in your heart, that's what makes it your own. Count it, he says. Do this. Something we are to do with our trials. James is telling us the disposition, the attitude with which we are to face our trials. He's he's telling us how to think about them. He's telling us how to look at them. And this is indeed not something that comes naturally to our flesh. The New American Standard Bible uses the word consider instead of count. Consider them. And that's consistent with the word. Count is perhaps more direct from the the Greek as the King James ESV here and the ASV as well. They all translate it count, but it's to think this way. Count it. Count it what? All joy. All joy. I had to chuckle a little bit when I, I thought, you know, I need to look at that word all because... Maybe it doesn't mean what I think it means, because surely he can't mean all. And you know what I found when I looked up in the Laonida 
lexicon of the Greek language, what that word all means, the young people today would love it totally. That's what it means. Total. Incompleteness. All of it. Count it all joy. Not just a little, not just a part. This is, this is by the way, I'm telling you much about a land that's, that's there that I can see. Boy, I don't always live there. In fact, far, far more seldomly do I live there as I should. But it's there. And this is the land to which we are to try and strive to go. It's not to, to close our eyes and make up things. Because we're going to get into why this is possible. Why it's necessary. Why anyone would do this. But to count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers. My brothers, don't miss that. It's important. I know perhaps to a fault I look, look at individual phrases and words in Scripture, but that this is important. He, he's not merely lecturing a bunch of students disconnected from the trial that, that he's talking about himself. He's not just giving them an academic dissertation. He's not just telling them what they ought to do. He's telling them, count it all joy, my brothers. He, that familial sense that he gives in making that statement. He was encouraging followers of Christ. To count their trials as joy. And he was doing so as a follower of Christ himself. Who also knew what it was to experience trials and difficulty. There is something especially helpful I think. About hearing words of encouragement in our trial. From those that we know that have themselves endured great trials. It has a weight to it. It has a substance to it. And James is sharing with them, my brothers, and he was known among these people that he was writing to. This was not a letter written from a stranger. This was a man that people knew. He was a man of influence. The leader sat there in the church at Jerusalem. The, the very brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he doesn't make any mention of that as we said last week. This was a man people knew and they saw and they understood that he knew what a trial was. He knew what it was to be tried. He knew what it was to face difficulty and terrible trouble in his life. And so this word, my brothers, leaps out in a sense, telling us such a strange thing to say, to count it all joy when you meet trials, but he puts in there, my brothers. This, by the way, this idea struck me as I was preparing. This is, this is a reason that you and I should be reading good Christian biography. And to be sharing our lives with other believers. To help us to see the struggles that other Christians have faced in their lives. And that they do face in their life. It will remind us and remind you that you're not alone. 
that others have faced the same and worse, perhaps. It will help put your own trials into a larger perspective, I think, as James encourages us to count our trials as joy. And we think about this one who's written it. There's a number of of accounts of James, this James death, some of them confused and some of them kind of fanciful. But by the most seemingly from what I've discovered, the most likely historical records indicate that he was stoned to death in 62 AD for being a follower of Christ. This is the one who's speaking to us to count our trials as joy. The one who went and willingly laid down his life as his Lord did. We can only imagine the many trials that James faced even before his death. As a follower of Christ in the first century AD in the Roman Empire, there were times of terrible, terrible persecution simply for being a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. We can only imagine the the difficulties that, that accompanied James' life And yet he says to us these words, but if this had been written by someone who lived seemingly, by all estimations, a carefree, trouble-free life, such words would be very empty and hollow indeed. But this was a man who knew a lot about trials. He knew a lot about what it was to meet these trials of various kinds. And we can just imagine and contemplate some of them. Surely there wasn't an area of his life that was not attended in some way by a trial. Not an area of his life, no doubt, was left untouched by his following of Jesus Christ. In fact, many of the trials that he experienced and endured, no doubt, became as a result of his following of Jesus Christ. The family members, maybe, in his Jewish community that rejected him because of his acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. The friends, the acquaintances, the the people maybe even that he was uh, admired and, and liked that turned their back to him because of his following of Jesus Christ. Those who forsook him as he forsook all and followed Christ. This was a man who knew what he was talking about when he tells us about trials and how we are to to meet them. And he reminds us of that by telling us, my brothers, brothers and sisters, those as we face these trials, count them, count them, consider them joy all. And he says, when, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. He does not say if. He doesn't say if you fall into trials. If this happens to you, but when you do, when you do, see trials, trials ought to be assumed in the Christian life. I'm going to say that again because I don't think I fully have adopted it as I ought. Trials ought to be assumed in your life if you're a follower of Christ. It should be more surprising to you if you are trial-free than if you have 
all kinds of trials that you don't know what to do with. That's easy to say. It's easy to talk about that land that I'm trying to point you to. It's easy to tell you about the, the, the fruit of that land, the joy that's there, even in the midst of trial. But they must be assumed, these trials in our life. No one, no one can accuse, rightly accuse God of false advertising. He, he told us again and again and again that we would have trials here. He's prepared us for them. He's told us they're coming. It's not his fault that they're here. The fault lies with us, with you and me. He came to redeem it and to make it right. But, but we cannot accuse God of false advertising his religion, if we might call it that. He's told us clearly. We have example after example in the Old Testament of men and women who faced terrible, terrible trials. The worst of, of any trial that this life can throw at them. We can look in the pages of the Old Testament, those 39 books, and we can, we can see again and again trial and trial and trial. And we can see in the life of Joseph, trial and trial and trial. We can see in Abraham's life, him being called to sacrifice his own son. We can see David again and again in trial after trial. God is not... Pull the, wool, pull the wool over our eyes when it comes to the reality of trials in our life. And just to remove any doubt from our mind, I want to quote again that very familiar passage in John where Jesus says to us, to you and to me and to his followers on that day that he said it, John 16, 33, I have said these things, these things to you that he has been talking to them that are going to bring great trial in their life. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. They're coming. Trials are on the way. A great many, a great many, or maybe just a few, I don't know, but some at least of these trials, they're going to surprise us. They're going to be things we never would have anticipated. They're going to take us by surprise. But one that should not surprise us is that we will live in this life with trials. That should not surprise us. It should, when we come front to front with them and face to face with them, it should be, yep. This is okay. My, my Lord just said something like this was coming. And he told me to be of good cheer because he's overcome all of this. I don't have to overcome it. He did. And so in that, I can count it joy because I know he's overcome this thing that's in front of me. I thought about being prepared for these trials and how, how necessary it is that a child of God be told point blank, locked eyes, bare truth. It's going to be hard here. This is going to be difficult. 
I've been trying to run a little bit more lately and there's instructors on this application I use. Some of them I like and some of them I don't. And the ones that I don't particularly like are the ones that don't warn you what's coming. In the run, 30, 40, 50 minutes later, you don't know whether to run hard now or later. You've got no idea. And they surprise you with something that you're, you just can't do anymore because you put too much effort at the beginning of it. You don't know sometimes how to pace yourself. Well, I want to tell you, in a similar manner, those who tell you that the Christian life in this world is a life of endless sunshine, level roads, and one pleasant experience after another are not properly preparing you for the Christian life that is in front of you. There's some hills out there. I run mostly on a treadmill anymore because my old knees would complain about that asphalt and cement. And I hate it when that instructor says, okay, six on the incline. Why do we have to do inclines? Why can't we just run on a level road? I'm telling you today, there's trials out there in front of you. I know you don't like it. I don't like it. I, I should be able to come to a place where I can count it joy because of Christ. And in Christ, this trial is temporary. But I want to tell you, honestly, the Christian life is one that is attended with trials. I know you know that. But he does not say, if you fall into... He's not preparing you for something that might happen. It's not his language, is it? He doesn't say, look, if you happen to come across a trial, if that's something that happens to you, I want you to count it joy. It's not what he says. He says, when, when this happens, James is not one guilty of not preparing a Christian for what Christianity really is. When you meet, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. If I'm correct, this word only appears three times in the New Testament, that word meet. When you meet, only three times. It's not a lot to build a, a, a contextual definition or understanding of not from Scripture alone, anyhow. But the verb, and it is a verb, translated, it might more literally be expressed as fall into. Perepasit is the Greek word. It, it's, it was also the word used when Jesus was giving the story of the Good Samaritan, and he said that this, uh, this man fell among robbers, fell among robbers is the same word as meet here. So the idea is these trials, just things that you fall into, they just meet you along the way. You don't go out and seek them. You know, show of hands, who goes out and says, you know what, I'm going to go look for a trial today. I'm going to go look for the worst possible thing that could happen today. We're not talking about trials that we seek, that we go after. We're not, Christian trials are not trials that, that we desire, that we long for, that we say, boy, I wish this could happen. They're just things that meet us in life here. We fall into them. Why? Why do we fall into trials? Because we live in a fallen world. 
a world of fallenness and brokenness. Trials are things that just meet us in this life. The proof of this is as plain as it can be. Unless we are not in our right minds, again, none of us seek these trials, but, but they sure seem to seek us. And we find them and, and we meet them. We're just living our life. And then trial comes. And of course, it's hard. It's hard to think about trials biblically without thinking about Job. It's hard to think of them without thinking about Job. And I thought of him. And in the 13th verse of the first chapter of Job, before the bad news came, the scripture says there was a day. There was a day. A day that began like many others before it. A day that began with Job waking up, much no doubt like he had woken up countless times before. A day where the sun rose just like it had risen countless times before. A day, by the way, for Job when things were going pretty well. He was wealthy. He had a, a, a wonderful large family. There was a day. And then he fell into a trial. And we know that behind the scenes, God and Satan have this conversation that are going on. And Job says, or excuse me, Satan says to God, yeah, yeah, Job's great. Because, well, I mean, look how much he has. God, of course, he's going to praise you. Look at what you've given him. And then there was a day. Job, unaware of that challenge going on behind the scenes and you know, I don't know that it's all that far-fetched. And you take this from me. It, you, it may be worth something, it may not, is what I mean by that. I don't know that it's all that far-fetched that there's conversations had about you and me too that we don't know about. This day that came, Job didn't expect it, but it's a day that changed everything in his life for the rest of his life. We all know the end of Job's story, too. We all fast forward to that. But you know what I think is dangerous for us when we think about Job and his trials? And then we, with a smile on our face, say, but God blessed him twice as much in the end as he had in the beginning. And we think like a fairy tale that everybody lived happily ever after. Job lived happily ever after. But not in this life he didn't. You say, well, how can you say that? I think Job found what it was to count trial joy. I do. I think that was the only way he was prepared to endure it. That he knew something about doing that. But do you think that there was a single solitary day for the rest of his life that he did not miss the children that had died on this day? God could have blessed him with a hundred children. He would have missed those. Every day that had been taken. Even after God restores him. Do you not think that his relationship with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz weren't forever changed? Do you not think that the scars of that day that they ever left him? 
The open wound, of course, it closed and God gave him joy in his life. But I have to believe that day never left him. For one messenger after another, three of them in a row, everything's been lost, Job. It's gone. Never to be given and restored. And what does he say in verse 21 of chapter 1? Naked came I into the world and naked will I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or excuse me, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is how trials meet us, though. We, we just go about our lives and they find us. It's as though they seek us. We just fall into them as a result of living in a world of brokenness and sin. And by the way, how, how could it be otherwise when we remember where we are? This is why verse 1 was so important to lay out. Who's speaking? Someone who saw himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he was. That's how he faced these things. That's how he could even begin to say something as incredible as count your trials joy. When we think about where we are, when we remember where we are now, does it not just stand to reason? Trials are going to abide us while we are here. It is when we forget where we are that our trials take us most by surprise. It's when we forget where we are. When we begin to look at this world for what it isn't. And it is when we are taken by surprise, by the way, that our trials that we struggle with are the most difficult. And are the most difficult, perhaps, to count as joy of various kinds. And don't be alarmed. We're not going to go like this through the verses 3 and 4. We're, we're coming near to our close. Of various kinds, he says. Our minds naturally go to the big trials of our lives. That's just where they naturally would tend to go. The big ones. And that isn't wrong. I don't think there's any trial that's left as an exception of what James tells us to do with them. But don't forget that there are a variety. There are all kinds of trials that we face in our lives. And, and we're to count all of them as joy. Big trials. Little trials. Daily trials. Work trials. Trials at home. Personal Demons and trials that continue to, to grapple in your heart. Common trials, just the day-to-day. -day. Things that are common that you just get tired of. But they're trials nonetheless. They're common. They're, these are trials. And if they're a trial, James says to count it a joy. Unusual trials. Ones that we don't know or don't understand and don't expect. Known trials. Things that people can outside of us can look and say and understand. They're facing a hard time. So those trials, James says, count it, count it as joy. And those trials that nobody knows about but you. The unknown trials. You have them. You have them. I have them. No one else in the world knows. God knows those trials. James tells us to count those trials as joy. Physical trials. 
physical disease or, or injury or struggle. Something that makes life difficult on a day-to-day basis to just live it. Some people live their whole lives in some degree or another of pain. It's said that Charles Spurgeon preached the last number of decades of his life in constant pain, physical pain. People have situations and and diseases or, or ailments that cause them unending, constant pain. Those physical trials count them as joy. Emotional trials. Trials that feel useful. You know, sometimes you can see a trial and you can go, this is, I can see how this will be used in my life and that is good and it helps us. There are some trials though that to us feel pointless. We don't understand and perhaps never will. On and on and on and on we could go listing the various kinds of trials that we confront in our life. But we're to, we're to count them as joy. That's the call. Verse 2 is the call to count trials as joy. Verse 3 is the, the, the why. Why would we do that is we're going to get into here next. What's the reason for counting our trials as joy? If we're honest, if you're honest... And there's, that there, there's a part of you and me that's resisting what James has just told us to do in verse 2. We, it just is. It just is. And we wonder and we ask ourselves the question that maybe you're posing to yourself. Why, why would anyone do this? Is Christianity a religion where we're supposed to remove ourselves from what it is to experience? To be human? Why would anyone do this? How does this make any sense at all? What reason is there to behave like this? And this is where making it your own begins. When you understand the answer to these questions. James tells us. After this monumental statement to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various Meet trials of various kinds. Why? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials. Why should we count them joy? He's not telling us to, to just bask in the trial and, and just put your head in the sand and ignore the terrible pain and grief that the trial brings to you. He's telling you to count them joy because those trials work in you, produce in you. And those are the two words among various translations I looked at, produce and works. These trials produce in us steadfastness. And that word steadfastness is the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Steadfastness. The ability and the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. I think there's a desire within us to to do that, to be able to do that. Isn't there? We want to be able to bear up under these trials of our life. 
and, and, and in part, we want to be able to do that because we've accepted and we know that difficult circumstances and trial are the rule of, that they rule the day in this life. Try as we might, you'll never remove difficult circumstances from your life. You just won't. If you're trying, you're attempting what cannot be done. So it seems to me the best option we have is to learn how to bear up under them if we can't remove them. I might have referred to this before today, and and certainly we ought to discourage people from being bullies, but I think it's high time that we start teaching our children once again not to run from them, but how to deal with them and how to be strong in the face of them because you can't get rid of them. They're always going to be here. It's like trials. We, We want to be able to remove trials from our life, and we think that that's the goal. That shouldn't be the goal. It shouldn't be the goal in our life. We, we understand they're here. They're going to be here. They'll attend us until the day that we die. That does not mean we are dispirited, that we are disheartened, that we go about life with our shoulders hunched and just broken ourselves because James said we're supposed to count them as joy. And we count them as joy because we know that if in these trials, bearing up under them with the help of God, we are able to stand them and bear them. We would perhaps want it another way. If it was up to you and me, no doubt it would be different. But there is no other way to have steadfastness produced in our life than for our faith and our lives to be tested with trial. It's just the way it works. And in verse 4, we do see something of the result that, that comes from from, from doing this, from counting our trials joy. And we know that there's, it's like a progression here. Verse, verse 3, we know that these trials produce steadfastness in us. But there's, there's yet another step. There's, there's the result that comes from a consistent standing and a consistent consistency in our faith in Christ that has produced steadfastness in the midst of trials. And trials, especially the big ones in our lives, Remind us what our greatest need is, and in some respects, our only need. That need is to be in fellowship with God. And that's why we can count them as joy. We don't enjoy them. We're not moronic. We're not out of our minds. We're not crazy. We don't seek them. We don't want them. If it was ours to do, we would change things. But we meet them while we're here in this broken, fallen world. And we look to them with faith in God and we ask him to help us to endure them. And through that, God produces in us a steadfastness. And that steadfastness, when verse 5 or verse 4 says, let steadfastness have its full effect. He's basically saying, don't give up. You're not going to be able to snap your fingers and do this one time and you're good. You're going to have to wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. Maybe with the same trial, maybe with a new one. But let steadfastness have its full effect in your life. Have it become yours, real to you. And again, these trials, especially the big ones, though, as we go through them, they remind us again and again and again of what our greatest need is, and that is God. Of all other things, Him, His help, fellowship with Him, 
to see this world for what it is, to understand that the reason we face trials is because we do indeed live in a fallen world and we yet are housed in a fallen carnal mind and heart that wrestles with that inward a world where the presence of sin, both our own and that of others, will unceasingly cause trials. This realization points us to God, who in Christ has overcome death and the grave. He's bridged the gap between us and God. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. He is our comforter. He is our God. And if we allow our trials to produce that kind of steadfastness in us and we let that process have its full effect and we endure in the midst of it, though we would never have imagined it possible in the early days or the early stages of the trial that we face, we'll find that we need nothing which is what he says. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We said earlier that God cannot be accused rightly of false advertising about what the Christian life is here. And, and we can't certainly do that. He's told us it's going it's gonna to be full of trials. He's told us the truth about it. He's told us the truth about this life. And has not our experience proved him true? Can anyone say they've lived their life never stumbling across a trial? Of course not. Some trials are just a little pebble in the road and we stumble and wonder what that was all about. Some trials leave us flat on our faces. But, but God's told us they're here and they're coming and they'll remain here. So we can take God's word, can we not, at what he said here about this life. You want to know why there's good news in that? Because if he told us the truth about this life, then he's told us the truth about the next one too. There won't be any trials there. There won't be any separation there. There won't be any tears. I've often said no tears there. I don't believe that anymore. There won't be any tears of sadness there. There'll be tears of joy. There won't be any brokenness any longer. There won't be any night. There won't be any of these things that God says is here. It's going to be here until you leave. And then if you have followed me, if you have repented and trusted in me, if you have made me your hope, if you have forsaken yourself and followed me and he has given you peace, if you know him, he's told you the truth about this world. But, but he's told you the truth about the next one too. What you can understand anyway. We can trust him. He's never lied. He's never lied. If you think God has lied to you, I want you to continue to pray and to read his word, and perhaps seek counsel from others. Because I think you're going to find out he, he hasn't. 
He's not lied. Most likely what's happening is we're listening to the lies of the enemy that make God's words sound like lies. Is that not what he did to Eve in the garden? Is that not what he's done to countless people since and to you and me as well? God does not, cannot lie. He's told us the truth about these trials, but he's told us the truth about the absence of them in the days to come for those who know him. So count them joy here, seeing that he's going to produce steadfastness in your life with them and that ultimately he's going to see you through them to a land of nothing but peace and joy and safety. So count them joy, even in the midst of the brokenness and the darkness that they bring to your life here. And again, I want you to just, as I close, remember who's writing. A servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am sure that little of what I have said today will make any sense to someone who is not as James was. A servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm sure that I might as well have been speaking a different language. Because you don't understand. You're not a servant of God. You think that the world is here to serve you. If you have a concept of God, you have this impression that he's here to serve you. You don't see yourself as James did. And so all the rest that he says is just going to baffle you and confuse you. Count your trials. Joy. What kind of insanity is that? But when you remember James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and something I want to close with today that I didn't mention last week that I meant to. When he said James, he's speaking of himself as an individual. He's calling himself out. This is me. Can't speak it for anybody else. This is me. And so I would ask you, if not right now, sometime today, sometime this week, maybe multiple times, replace his name with yours. And does it ring true? Does it ring true, Kent, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Because all the rest that James is going to tell us is going to—it's not going to rise to the level that it needs to for us to get it, if it doesn't start there and end there. If you're a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray something from this scripture today has been of help to you as you face your trials, and I know that you have them. I probably know a small percentage of them, but I know that you have them. And in those dark and difficult days and moments, may God help us all to learn to count them all joy in the right way for God's honor, for His glory. Because as we have said, we are his servants. Let's have a song if we could at this time.